And approaching the fruit of the spirit the last couple weeks, I never would have imagined what was going on would be going on in Afghanistan. Um, we know that there are Christians being persecuted daily around the world for the gospel. Uh, but as I approached this sermon and I was practicing it and rereading and reading scriptures, I went, how am I supposed to talk on gentleness when everything around me is not gentle right now? Like, what, what is this? But then the Lord reminded me his word is the same yesterday as it is today and that we still need gentleness even now, if not more. One scripture that stood out to me as I prayed this past week over the women, the children, the leaders of the church over in Afghanistan was 1 Peter 3, 13 to 16. And it says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with great gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. We cannot let fear control us in how we act or respond to what is occurring in the world around us, what is occurring in our own backyards even. It's imperative we draw close to what God has directed of us, and one of those directions is to respond with gentleness. We are to be ready at any moment to answer for where our hope comes from, but we are also to be ready to do it with a gentle attitude and with respect, not just for the other person, but for our own faith. We represent Christ when we respond, so we have to respect that and respond as Christ would call us. We're seeing in the news and in the Christians in Afghanistan, it's not easy. This is not something that only applies in America, where we're free for now to express it. Uh, you know, right now, we're lucky we're not facing persecution. We're not hiding. But right now, there's people who are hiding, not just in Afghanistan. I've been blessed that um, through my husband's family to become friends with a missionary who regularly has faced these dealings. And it's not easy. You know, we're blessed right now where we're at. And uh, actually, our cousin said on Facebook the other day that here she was scared to tell someone what, where her faith comes from in fear of what they think of her when there's people over there being persecuted. So as we delve into what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit gentleness, I want us to really take the time to observe Old Testament and New Testament, what it means to be gentle. You know, as a mother, I get this side of gentleness of, you know, cozying our children and loving on them. And you're so sweet. But there's another side to gentleness. And, you know, sometimes people may see gentleness as meek or weak. But in actuality, it's strength. We hear of God's amazing strength time and time again where mountains were moved. Even of the wrath of God we've heard of. But there's also a gentleness to God. We have all seen in Hollywood movies the superheroes. They're like tough, muscular. Some of them even have like grand weapons and they come in and they just wipe out the bad guys and they just take them out. And I know sometimes I've even seen it and been like, oh, that'd be so cool to have that superpower to do that. However, that's not what we're called to. 
God doesn't call us to respond to our enemies, Rambo style. No, instead he calls us to a gentle demeanor. Being gentle does not mean that we are weak. It's the opposite. It means we have the strength and the maturity to hold back, even in the face of adversity. In Ephesians 4, 1 to 2, we're being told up front how we're to bear. And it says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, not just partially, not just a little bit, not just when it's convenient, not when it's like sunny and beautiful out, but completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. There are people preparing to face the wrath of the enemy. They do this because they know that when they take their last breath, no matter how gruesome it may be, they're going to be in the kingdom of the Lord, and they are going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's easy for us to get caught up in the world and what's going on and how the world is treating us, and if we took the time, we could have a list of complaints. But at the end of the day, none of that matters. The adversities Christians face do not matter. What matters is the way that the Christians respond to that adversity. What matters is that until we take that final breath, we carry ourselves as God has called us to, honoring his God-breathed living word. In the Old Testament, there's two people who face adversity and who are shown God's gentleness. And before I go there, I want to point out Isaiah 40:11, where it says, he tends to his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads them um, that have young. What's this have to do with gentleness? In these scriptures, we see God is gentle like a parent. And in these two people I'm going to talk to you about, we're going to see that gentle, caring, passionate side of God. God's gentleness, I, uh, when I was looking through Old Testament, I'm like, okay, God, I really want to, you know, show your gentleness and your goodness. And I kept coming back to Hagar. And if you guys don't know who Hagar is, Hagar was Sarah's servant. Um, and Sarah was married to Abraham. They were struggling to have a baby. So Sarah tells Abraham, I want you to marry Hagar. I want you to have a baby with her. Please do this. So Abraham does. And she becomes pregnant. However, she becomes resentful to Sarah. And she goes, you know, Sarah goes to Abraham and says, this is what's going on. She's being resentful to me, you know, mean, like, I don't know what to do. And he says, well, she's your slave. Do whatever you feel. And so what she feels is best is to abuse Hagar. She's mean to Hagar, malicious to her. And Hagar actually tries to flee pregnant. Because that seemed better, to go out into the wilderness pregnant than to stay and deal with what's going on with Sarah and Abraham. However, when she's there, God tells her to go back. And in this conversation that she gets, we see in Genesis 16, 13, she gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Hagar was a servant who was mistreated and caught in a, des in a despair of unhappiness. Um, you know, she was stuck in a loveless situation. She wasn't receiving love. She, you know, was a servant. She was forced to marry someone, have, get pregnant. You know, and she didn't even want to be pregnant. She was just, you know, this servant. And she's like, I don't like where I'm at. But God sent her back, and she went. But before he sent her back, he told her, I see you. 
I see you. And she responded with, and I see the one who sees me. Later in Genesis 21, Hagar and Ishmael are sent out into the wilderness, and we see God again meet Hagar where she is at. She's crying in despair out of water. So she's sent out with her son. They're out in the wilderness. They've completely run out of water resources. And she leaves her son off in a distance because she cannot bear the thought of watching him die. And she just sits and she's weeping. And the Lord again provides water for her and opens her eyes. And he tells her to go back to her son, take his hand, and lead him. And so she obeys. God didn't have to make himself available to a servant girl and her son. God didn't have to show up and provide water. God didn't have to be there for her in her time of need. He didn't have to appear. He could have left her there. He could have left her to be what was going to be, but he didn't. Because God sees and hears your cries and cares for you. Just like a father cares for his children. Some of you are in a deep despair. Some of you are facing things that just seems like a situation you can't get out of. And all around you, you're just like, you know what? Here I am and nothing's changing. However, God sees and hears you. And he's there with you. If you're still not convinced, I have another one for you. And that's Elijah. Elijah's going through what some could say is defeat, maybe even depression. He's the last standing prophet, and Ahab is out to kill him. He runs into the wilderness, lays down, and he's ready to die. He's ready. He's like, they're going to kill me. I've just, I have nothing more to give. I can't do this. I can't keep running. I'm just, I'm done. And in 1 Kings 19, this story is unfolding. We see an angel come to him, wake him, and there's bread on hot coals and a jar of water. And he's woken two times with food and water. And the angel of the Lord even says in verse 7, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. After that, Elijah does. He gets up, he eats. But I want to point out here in that little line, God was acknowledging the journey was too much. Some of us were like, this is too much. And the Lord knows that, and he wants to give you the provisions you need to keep going. After Elijah eats the second time and things, he continues on for 40 days and 40 nights. He travels until he reaches a cave where he goes to spend the night. The Lord appears to Elijah, and this is when we see the Lord in the most gentle way, but also in, like, the most mighty way. Like, I really feel like it would have been amazing to see this. So in verses 11 to 14, it says, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. It's amazing when we look at that. The Lord didn't 
reveal himself in wind, earthquake, or fire. Nope. It was in a gentle whisper. In some translations, as I read this scripture, it actually says it was a still, small voice. When I think of God, I think of anything but small, right? But he came to Elijah in that still, soft voice. God was gentle with his failing prophet. He restored him. He provided for him. And when all was said and done, he sent him back to the mission. If we were to continue reading on, he actually does give Elijah instruction to go further and what to do next. And Elijah obeys. Elijah was able to obey and go back because he had been tenderly and gently cared for in his struggles. God could have slapped him and said, get up and get going. I don't want to hear your excuses. He could have. You know, I don't want to hear your complaining. Just get going. I know there's been times as a mom where I look at my kids. I do not want to hear one more complaint. Just keep walking. You know? But he didn't. He met him where he was. First, he provided the provisions that he needed so that he would be able and ready to hear the direction that he had for him. God recognized that Elijah was in a you know, struggling point in his life. Some of you are struggling and have been struggling, and you're wondering, where is God in all of this? And I have to say, it's not a booming voice. It's not like thunder in the sky. It's a gentle voice. But in order to hear that gentle voice, we've got to quiet ourselves and listen. We've got to wait on the presence of the Lord. He tenderly cares for you, and he's trying to pour into you and nourish you so that you can get back to the mission you were called to. When it comes to gentle, God's gentleness, we're supposed to emulate that in how we handle people who are struggling, people who are ready to give up, people who are hurting. We're called to respond with gentleness. We can direct and guide, but only once we've offered the provisions they need to receive it. I have never, ever seen my child take any direction from me when I'm angry, ever. My first one will shut down and just sob. If she senses any anger, she will just shut down. And my second one will boldly, boldly go further with it because, like, you did not just talk to me that way. We have learned, I think, in the two kids that we have now and this third one coming is that just like we would with an adult, we have to handle them with gentleness and respect. Every time we've given our children guidance under gentleness and love, they've gone far. Every time we've withheld that need, when we withheld what they need to receive the direction we're giving them, didn't go well. Didn't go well at all. There's someone in the Bible who rings louder than anyone that I could ever talk about when it comes to emulating gentleness in the face of adversity. The person was dealt the hardest of blows, beaten and persecuted, even had their closest companions betray them. Jesus. I was actually taught in Bible school, you can't have a good sermon unless you actually bring it back to Jesus. And I have to say, while that's true for all sermons, this sermon screams the need for Jesus. When reading on the life of Jesus, and especially the end of his life, there's something that is unable to be ignored. Jesus' greatest strength was always shown in gentleness. Looking at the people that Jesus reached, the parables that Jesus used to teach with, 
we see that he made the time and effort, the effort, he really put it in there for those that society bullied, belittled, and rejected. He made the time for them. In Matthew 11, 28 and 29, it states, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, when Jesus comes, it's at a point when Pharisees and scribes have added so much to God's laws that it becomes an instrument in crushing conformity, which is the opposite of gentle. I don't know if you've ever looked into what it means to take up a yoke, but typically they put animals together that are of the same size, and they hook them together to get the work done, and they work together. One can't go one way while the other goes the other because they're attached. And it's very important that you have animals that are like very close in size because if not, one's doing more work than the other and it just doesn't work. So Jesus says we're to take up a yoke with him. I don't know about you, but I know I am nowhere near close to equal to Jesus. Nowhere near. But Jesus says this and he uses this illustration because he wants to take on the extra burden. He wants to carry you and gently guide you. And what it means is, is we come alongside Jesus. We let him take on that burden, but we follow where he leads us. We don't go off on our own. We don't try to carry more than we can handle. We leave it to Jesus and we just follow and we focus where he leads us and we let him guide us. Part of the need for Jesus to come to earth and to show the people who he was was to show them a physical example of what it means to be loving, faithful, compassionate, and obedient in their relationship with God. When we observe the things that Jesus did, we are being given the ultimate example of how we carry ourselves with others, how we are supposed to face adversity. The difference in Jesus and the Pharisees, while there are many, is that Jesus was not harsh or arrogant. Harshness and arrogance can easily poison and pollute the way some people behave with their religion becomes self-righteously confrontational. I'm going to pause and be honest here. When I went to Bible school, I was like a teenager and, you know, early 20s. I couldn't wait during breaks to come home and teach my aunt how to interpret the Bible. Okay? Like, I was like, I can't wait to just let them bask in the knowledge that I have received. All right. Now, if you know my aunt, this woman can quote the Bible forward, backwards, and all around, but I couldn't wait to teach her. Okay. Yeah, you can laugh. We, her and I laugh still on the phone about it. Uh, when you need prayer, you go to her first. You're like, hey, I need prayer. But then at the same time, you're kind of like a little trembly to come to her because you know it's about to get really real really fast. Right. But I couldn't wait to teach her. I couldn't wait to teach my family and my friends, y'all are living wrong and here's why, okay? Here's what the Bible says, not trying to say anything, but you're wrong, like you need to do this. <laughs> I remember I was so caught up in, I'm right, you're wrong, the choices you're making are so wrong. I forgot to be humble and gentle, like Jesus called it wasn't until about three years ago my sister and I started to be able to have a genuine in-depth conversation about God and leading her to scripture to help her. 
And it was because I realized I am not perfect. I am not perfect. I do not have it all together. And even though on the forward, you know, the front, I may think that I look like I got it together. I don't. And my sister, who's like, you know, knows me, knows me. She knew it too. By me being able to say I'm not perfect, I have flaws in me, it gave the opportunity for her to feel comfortable to talk to me. It let her see, hey, um, Christians, yeah, we're not perfect. No, we just have a perfect God. That's it. Like, you're never 100% perfect, okay? And I'll admit to you, my toddler, she is the perfect, I call her the accountability partner. She will remind me when I am not perfect, sometimes like a drill sergeant, but it's fine. I like to, you know, it's all about perspective. And in perspective, I say, it's accountability. It's accountability, you know? I'm not going to take this personally. Thank you for reminding me. Some of you may want to retort with, we're called to hold our brothers and sisters accountable. And maybe you've tried to be gentle, and you know what? They just didn't turn it around, and the timing you feel is justified. So now it's time to deal with them some harsh truth. Lord knows I did that a few times with my sister. It doesn't work. Fact of the matter is, you and I were both wrong. Jesus in John 4 speaks to a Samaritan woman about her previous five marriages at a well. Now you would think this would surely be a rebuking. Five marriages, that's a lot. But it wasn't. He spoke to her directly about what was occurring, and while we do not know the tone of Jesus' voice in all of this, there's something to recognize in this time frame. Back then, it was a man's prerogative to end a marriage. Women didn't have a say in that. So, you know, Jesus knows this. And for all we know, this woman could have been the victim of five men who just abandoned her, victimized her and abandoned her and exploited her. So it's a miracle that Jesus is talking to her, and he's talking to her with this gentleness and this directness, but with a respect. And he's hearing what she's saying back, too. Through his gentle but forward conversation, she ends up bringing many from the town. He goes, he tells her all these things and about being the living water, and she runs back to town and says, Hey, this guy, I think he might be the Messiah. Um, he knew a lot about me that, like, nobody knows. He talked to me, and you, you gotta come, you got to come check this out. And they do. Um, it says in the Bible that Jesus ended up staying two more days just to witness to these people because they were so curious. And it was all because he took the time to be gentle and talk to one person without judging them. He took the time to get to her level. He was direct with her. He didn't encourage her to keep living you know, a sinful life. But he was gentle with her, and he gave her what she needed for her to continue on. Imagine had Jesus given her the cold shoulder or judged her harshly, how she may have dismissed him. A whole town may have missed out on meeting Jesus. A whole town may have missed out on hearing what the Messiah had to say. But because he was gentle, because he was respectful, a whole town got to hear the word of God. In Mark 7, again, we see Jesus offer gentle but firm response to a Syrophoenician woman. I practiced saying that word I don't know how many times this week, okay? I have mom brain quite a bit, and those words don't come out easy anymore. This woman comes, and her daughter's possessed. She begs him to come and set her daughter free of impure spirit. It's important to know 
that it was less acceptable for him to talk to a woman, especially a Samaritan woman, but it was even more unacceptable for him to talk to this woman. And, uh, you know, so she's coming to him. And instead of ignoring her, instead of giving her cold shoulder, he responds stating it's not fair to take food from the children who are eating. And normally, like, I feel like if Jesus told me that, I'd be like, okay, thank you anyway. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> no, she goes, she says very boldly, even dogs eat scraps from the children. Jesus tells her, go back to her home. Her daughter is free of the demon. And why was she freed? Because of the reply that the woman had. You see, Jesus gently probing her draws her faith into open view. By her being persistent, her saying, no, like even the dogs eat scraps. I, I don't need a lot. I just need a scrap, Jesus. She put her faith out there for the world to see. She didn't care who was around. She didn't care that she was seen as less acceptable in her society. She put it out there, and Jesus delivered. Sometimes all it takes is having a willingness to acknowledge who Jesus is and what he is capable of. Sometimes all we have to do is say, hey, Jesus, I know you're the only one capable of handling this situation, so I'm going to need your deliverance. And it's okay if it doesn't come right away. I'm going to still keep persisting and pressing into you for that deliverance, however you want it to happen. Lastly, we cannot mention the gentleness of Jesus without talking about the persecution of Jesus. At any moment in the trials, the beatings, the crucifixion, he very easily could have said, angel armies, come down and destroy. He could have just destroyed everyone. But yet, time and time again, he doesn't. And he offers compassion and gentleness, asking the Lord to forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's one person in this story that stood out, though, in all of this is Peter. Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Three times. And as I looked into this story, Peter was actually not too far off from Jesus when he does it. And there's another disciple with him, witnessing him deny Jesus. So Jesus, you know, is resurrected, and they're down on a beach one morning, and Jesus appears. And they are all sitting around this fire with fish and things, and Jesus asked Peter then three times, do you love me? And Peter goes, surely I do. Surely I do. So Jesus accepts it. He leads him in a conversation about what it's going to look like for Peter down the road the persecution he will face. Jesus very easily could have dismissed Peter. He could have said, you know what? You betrayed me not once, not twice, but three times, okay? You betrayed me. My, my father has no place for you in heaven, okay? He could have easily said, you know what? Your mission will be given to someone else. You're done. But he didn't. He embraced him. He said, okay, you love me. Here's what you're going to be facing. Jesus paid the ultimate price for Peter's sins and for ours and for the people in our lives. So what do we do with this? What do we do when we see things not going right? What do we do when we're facing adversity? How do we respond to those close to us who aren't living according to God's word? How do we respond to them? How should we approach them? 
How should we handle ourselves in the midst of all the chaos in our lives? It is really quite simple. We are to handle it just as Jesus would and just as God has. Gentleness is a Christian way of life. I want to offer a few pieces of scripture to help in handling the day-to-day gentleness that we are supposed to carry because it's not easy. I want to talk about how do we be gentle with the people closest to us that we see day-to-day, our kids, our spouse, our siblings, even our parents. How do, how do we give them this gentleness? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but we tend to hold the people closest to us to a higher standard than the people out in the world. We tend to be like, you know what? You were raised in the church. You know how you should be behaving. What do we do when we know what they are doing is wrong? How can we sit calmly and gently to handle such injustice to the Lord? When it comes to being gentle in this area, it does not mean we do not acknowledge the wrongs that they are doing or occurring. It means we respond with a gentle and humble love for them. Gentle because what is occurring is a weak spot for them and their walk with Christ. And it may be a sensitive topic to approach. Humble, because we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. (laughs) I have a huge failing in myself, whether other people see it or not. We cannot approach someone with harsh judgment without first dealing with ourselves in the same regard. Loving, if we truly are approaching this area with humble, gentle love for them, when it's approached, that person shouldn't walk away feeling less than. They should walk away feeling encouraged, strengthened, and like they have someone with them helping them to get back on course. If we're doing it right, if we're guiding them right, In Galatians 6.1, it states, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you may be tempted. Approach the sensitive topics in your area, in the loved one's area of life, with a gentle love for them. But also do not take time to guard, or do take time to guard yourself in prayer and humility. Because you are dealing with something sensitive. Guard yourself in prayer. Handle them with gentleness. You can say, hey, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with what's going on without knocking them down a few feet. Okay? It is possible. I want to share with you a little little story, something deeply personal. It's not entirely my story, though. So my sister, who I mentioned earlier, she got pregnant as a teenager. And I remember I had this deep anger for her walking away from the way that we were raised, from walking away the way that God had trained us. I was so mad. But even more than my anger, I had this ache to want to protect her and to protect this baby. She had this precious son who I am absolutely obsessed with. Um, You may have heard me mention he calls me Mimi. And I will admit, as an 18, 19-year-old, I didn't like that. Did not like that. I was like, I am not old enough to be called a Mimi. However, it stuck, and now I'd be lost without that title. (laughs) I remember, as I watched her raise her son, people of the church judged her. They didn't warmly receive her when she would show up on Sunday with her son. I watched as people turned their backs from her. 
people who were Christians, who were her teachers in Sunday school, all of a sudden looked at her like, how could you? Why are you here? And if I'm honest, there was a year or two where even I held her at a higher standard of how could you? One time we were at a community fair in line to buy fries. My nephew at the time was two in a stroller. And there were three women, I can picture their faces to this day, standing in front of us in line. And they heard him making like cute little sounds and singing. And so of course they turned around, they were so excited, you know, baby, oh cute. And they turned around, they saw the baby, and then they looked up and they saw her, and they saw him calling her mom. And they point blank looked at her, and then looked at each other and said, it is a shame babies having babies. That poor little child. And I remember standing there like, whoo, I'm about to fight. Like, I was ready. I was like, Lord, you better hold me back. And before I could even respond, my sister knelt down to her two-year-old and said, Mommy loves you so much, and I am so glad that I have you. And they just went, and turned around. I stood there amazed at the gentle love she offered her son. I've since watched her time and time again face adversities and time and time again. While she may at times have a hot head every now and again with family, <laughs> she responds to her children with a deep love and compassion. Just about a year ago, she gave birth to her fourth child and had a blood clot that almost killed her. From that, she fought extreme anxiety at the thought that she wasn't going to wake up one day for her kids. But because I had reached a humble point in my relationship with her by that point, because I had been gentle in my guidance with her, she came to me asking for scripture. She came to me asking for worship music. She called and let us pray for her. And this was the same girl who wasn't able to walk into church because of the judgment that she was facing. But she was asking. She was hungry. We've since gotten to see her turn it around a little bit. She's not perfect. She's still not, you know, where we should be entirely, but she's trying. She's striving for it. And the reason that she was able to turn to me for guidance was because I was gentle, because I respected the fact that, you know what, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect. Well, yes, I see your sins. My sins are, are there too. You just may not see them as well as we see yours. We were humble. We have seen many people in churches today who make mistakes and instead of being gently restored and guided are rejected and judged harshly. That's not our job. Our job is called to restore, not to reject. God will handle the rejecting who needs to be rejected, who doesn't. That's not our job, not in the job description. My husband had a coworker at the bank. She used to love to tell people when you asked her to do something, that's not in my job description. <laughs> Not in our job description to judge people. Not our job description. Second Timothy 2, 24 to 25 states, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Nowhere in there does it say we're to fight, reject, and judge those who are not living according to God's word. What I see is we're to be kind and gentle and teach them, hoping that it sets a seed that grows within them. 
I got the honor of teaching with my mother-in-law for five years. And we taught teenagers, to put it bluntly, who were seen as failures to society. Not just society, but their family. Even people in the school and those around them would put them down. They were told they were not good enough. They were reminded of all the things they continually have done wrong in the past, and they most likely will do in the future. However, in those five years, we got those kids their senior year. It was their last year of high school, right? Everything should be set in stone with how they're going to be. And in that year that we would have them, as their English teacher, I suddenly saw them write like an honor student. They would talk passionately about their passions to us. They used manners that based on some of their observations that previous teachers gave, they shouldn't even know. And why were they able to do that? Because they were loved first. We need to love first before we provide instruction and resources. You cannot effectively lead someone to Christ without love. If we are not gently loving the people where they are at, meeting their needs for their provisions, whether it's for some of our students, it was they just needed breakfast. We had one girl who faithfully would walk in the freezing cold and her hands, they would be changing color and all she needed was gloves. We had one girl, Graceland was a baby, she was in class with us, and we had one girl who all she needed was I'd park the stroller next to her and then she would just talk. She would just let it all out. And then the second I would take Graceland away, she'd shut down. So guess where Graceland sat for the entire class? Next to her. If all we are doing is tearing someone down, if all we are doing is telling them all the things they've done wrong, they will not receive guidance from you. Teaching is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart, but we're called to do it for the loved ones in our lives. In order to do that, you have to be willing to recognize they're a person. They have feelings. They have aspirations. They have hurts, okay? And they're not perfect. They're not going to be perfect ever, but we can help them in their struggles. We can lead them to God's grace. Like I said earlier, my kids have never come to something willingly when I was angry, resentful, or withholding. My oldest daughter, I don't know if you know the love languages, we do love languages in our house. My oldest daughter, she's words of affirmation, like nobody's business. She will never receive something from me if I say she's bad. If I say, oh, that was bad, she shuts down. She can't handle it. So when we meet with her, it has to be, we love you so much. You know, you kind of made a mistake, but mom and dad make mistakes. And when we make mistakes, there's consequences. And the consequence for the mistake we made is this. And almost every single time, I could be wrong, but almost every single time that girl's come to us and apologized. Not because we told her to, but because we met her needs, and then we taught her, 
and then she was able to take it a step further and do the right thing. In the book we were reading on the fruit of the spirit, there was a quote that I'd like to close with. The author is talking about personal failings and shortcomings, and he says, Deep awareness that I am just as human, flawed, and tempted as anyone else. I have no reason to feel superior and get aggressive when other people show their flaws and failings. Not if I know my own heart. I want to challenge you to deeply know your heart. Deeply search yourself for shortcomings and then wash over it with grace, all while embracing the humble demeanor that we are not perfect and we are just as in need of correcting and God's grace as the person we see struggling. If you see someone struggling, respond with gentleness and humility first. Let God do the judging. In our home, you know, you make a bad choice, you get a consequence. Leave the consequence dealings to God. That's not your job. Just love them. Be there to offer the wisdom when they're ready to receive it. I'd like us all to enter into a time of worship and prayer. And I want to challenge you to align yourself with Christ correctly and humbly. And I'd like as you pray for your fellow Christians who are facing persecution now and in other areas of the world, let's join together and really pray, pressing into the Holy Spirit so that these seeds that we've been planting, that we've been discussing these past few weeks, that they truly grow and that we'd use them and utilize them when we leave this place. God gives us these resources for a reason. He doesn't call us to these things just to call us to them. God created every human. He knows their wiring. He knows what they respond to, what they don't respond to. So if God's telling us we need to be gentle, we need to be gentle. 